This is Archive Atlanta, episode 93, Eugenics. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Before we get started today, I want to share the first piece of exciting news that I have been working on. As you may have noticed, this is episode 93. And this week marks the two-year anniversary of the launch of this podcast, with episode 100 quickly approaching. Before the pandemic, I had ideas about doing my first live event, maybe, to coincide with my 100th episode, or even just throwing a big party so that I could meet all you guys. But as we know, the world had other plans for 2020, and none of those included parties. My favorite part of working on Archive Atlanta is getting to meet people. Hearing your stories, how these places are connected with your lives or the lives of your family. As an outsider, you know, so somebody that doesn't have a connection to the city per se, I love hearing that, you know, your grandpa went to this school or my mom used to work for this person or, you know, this is where I had my first date. And so I have set up a Google voicemail or a Google phone number and it will let you leave a message for me. So I want you to call 678 465 7161, and then leave me your favorite Atlanta story, whether it's a building, a place, an event, or even a person. Don't worry if you mess up. You can just start over. You can hang up and call again. I think I can edit all this. I'm going to figure out the logistics of it later, but it does come to me in an audio file. And so I want to create a special 100th episode where I can share and collect these stories. Get your parents to share, get your grandparents, or even your kids. I will list the phone number in the show notes if you need it. Um, If you have any questions, you can always contact me. Now on to this week's topic, which I know is pretty dark. But before you start to worry about me, I promise this is much more relevant than you think, which should make you a little more scared than you expect it to be. Eugenics may sound like a thing of the past, but its effects linger on today in every ism we have today, especially ableism and racism. Similar to the episode about interracial marriages, this is a nationwide story with a lot of focus on the state of Georgia, but also many connections to Atlanta. You got to remember that Atlanta has been the capital of the state of Georgia since Reconstruction. So even when we're talking about statewide law, remember that it is being made right here in the city. Eugenics is the philosophy that humans and society can be improved by only allowing people with quote-unquote desirable traits to reproduce. And this is called positive eugenics, which pushed the idea of selective marriages and better methods to raise children. Those with quote-unquote undesirable qualities were discouraged from reproducing and typically sterilized. And that fell under the term negative eugenics. During the late 1800s, scholars and scientists took Darwin's theory of evolution slash natural selection, and they began applying it to social and political development. And eventually, this was called social Darwinism, until the cousin of Charles Darwin named Francis Galton coined the term eugenics. He officially defined it as the, quote, hereditary improvement of the human race by selective breeding, end quote. In 1875, a man named Richard Dugdale produced his first study, I use that term very loosely, uh, which asserted that criminality and feeble-mindedness were hereditary traits passed down through generations. Being that the state had to care for people with mental or physical disabilities, the logic was then that we can save money by selective breeding. 
the eugenics movement gained traction in the 1920s. And it's important to look back at the decades prior to see how we got there. Between 1900 and 1915, more than 15 million immigrants arrived into the U.S. Majority were non-English speaking. And so it was hard for America to logistically absorb all these people. Cities are overcrowded, there's a strain on resources, and you see this dramatic effort to socialize newcomers in a way of life that was pretty much appropriate for upper middle class white people. Things are changing, faces are changing, religions are changing, and so you see the growth of nativist and anti-immigrant movements. And the fear is that immigrants are going to disrupt our existing social cultural values. We get the 1924 Immigration Act, and in 1925, a House representative from DeKalb County proposes a bill to define who is white and who is a person of color, making sure that they specifically did not marry. These anti-immigration and nativist movements fed right into the eugenics movement because it set out to define who the quote-unquote real Americans were in society and then decide who should inherit nation's future. The part that really blew my mind was that eugenics laws were considered progressive, and the delay in Georgia in passing them, which we'll get to shortly, was because we had government leadership that did not believe in socially progressive reforms. For those working in the progressive era, which, spoiler alert, is every local women's club you can think of, the idea was that it was benevolent to save the weak from even existing, and therefore being burdened to receive charity all their lives. In Georgia, we see talks of the eugenics movement all the way back to 1912, when Dr. Garrard presented his paper at the Milledgeville State Asylum titled Sterilization, the Only Logical Means of Retarding the Progress of Insanity and Degeneracy. He became one of the first doctors to publicly support sterilization of criminals and the mentally disabled. Within a year, other doctors across the state jumped on this bandwagon, and the Medical Association of Georgia's Journal of Medicine began publishing articles on the topic. In 1913, Dr. Champion, who was a prominent Atlanta physician and professor at Atlanta School of Medicine, introduces a eugenics bill into the legislature. He believed that, quote, confirmed criminals and rapists should be castrated, end quote. And that's about the tamest thing he said. The rest, I do not even want to repeat. The bill, however, failed. But the next best idea for those in charge was to separate those deemed defective or unfit. And suddenly, we see the rise of intelligence tests in grammar schools and lobbying efforts to build an institution for these children that didn't measure up. In 1918, the Georgia legislature authorized a committee to investigate and report on how to care for the feeble-minded. One year after that, an act created the Georgia Training School for Mental Defectives in Gracewood, Georgia, which was just south of Augusta. The first residents moved in in July of 1921, and Dr. Anderson from the National Committee for Mental Hygiene brought the eugenics movement to Georgia and helped get this institution started. He believed that feeble-minded girls are the source of venereal diseases and illegitimacy, and that 40% of prostitutes were feeble-minded and 30% of children in orphanages were defective. And guys, just so you know, I have like all of these words in quotes. It it kills me to use terms like defective and feeble-minded, um, but this is the terminology they used, and so I just want you to know that. In 1908, Mary DeGarmo established the first Better Babies contest at the Louisiana State Fair in Shreveport. Babies between the ages of 6 and 48 months 
or two years old for you non-parents, would be examined thoroughly and judged on their health and appearance, mirroring theories established by the eugenics movement. By 1913, the Woman's Home Companion, which was a really popular magazine, began co-sponsoring these contests, and they began being held all over the U.S. In Atlanta, we see it as early as 1914. And they were held around the state, um, almost always organized by the head of a local women's group. Atlanta's first contest was November of 1914 at the Baptist Tabernacle. And yes, the same downtown concert venue that we all love and went to before COVID was also the same place where we searched for the best baby. Parents from the city and all surrounding counties, even into South Georgia, signed up 500 babies to be judged. The winners, little Anna Arden, who lived on Piedmont Road, and Roger Wing, who lived on North Avenue, took home the top prizes. This was one of the only contests that had decided to do awards for the, quote, poorest, puniest babies, end quote. And this may sound weird, um, but I'm going to back up and explain these contests in a little more detail. While they were broadly connected to eugenics, I mean, they are literally highlighting the most desirable characteristics, the main idea was to spread knowledge of infant health. So organizers realized that by running a baby beauty pageant, they weren't really getting to see infants that needed medical care or medical attention. So in order to get these parents to bring these babies in, uh, the Better Baby Shows in Atlanta decided to give awards for the weakest babies so that they could propose, quote, reconstruction and betterment, end quote. In the same year, eugenics was being pushed in Georgia schools. But state school commissioner M.L. Britton, who I just mentioned in last week's episode about Georgia Tech because he was president there, refuses to incorporate it. But it's not like he thought the idea was crazy. And this is where it gets kind of difficult. So he, he, he wasn't, you know, dismissing eugenics. He just thought it was a better topic for parents to teach at home. And that view was shared by many. The article says that the science of eugenics is excellent, but we're rushing to try and fix our past mistakes, and we need to take things a little more slowly. By 1915, the Georgia Better Babies contest had grown bigger and better, moving into Taft Hall at the Auditorium Armory. Under the direction of the Atlanta Association of Suffrage Leaders, Mrs. Hamilton Block secured the best physicians, eye, ear, nose, and dental specialists to examine the 800 babies entered. Dr. Vinsanka would check the final eight babies who were not allowed in with their parents and simply identified by a number. At the event, everyone wanted to discuss the story of Chicago's baby Bollinger. Little John Bollinger was the fourth child born to Chicago couple Anna and Alan, but he was born with a missing ear and a skin issue that was described that it looked like he didn't have a neck. I don't quite know what it was. His doctor, Harry Hazelden, refused to operate on the infant to save his life because he believed the child was mentally and morally defective. He told the parents that, you know, if you let this kid grow to an adult, um, he'll become an imbecile or a criminal. Baby Bollinger died just days later. So the women in Atlanta were really curious and what everybody thought about this. Of the nine female contest officials and the 12 volunteering mothers, they all agreed that the doctor made the right choice. Event organizer said, quote, Had this baby been mine, I would have chloroformed it myself if the doctor had decided to let it live. End quote. All of these women were suffragettes. They were all fighting for the rights of women and yet didn't comprehend that a person with a physical deformity had rights too. 
The lone opposing voice to this group of women was Mrs. George Miles, the wife of a prominent Atlanta physician. The grand prize winner of this Better Babies contest was Claude Lewis Trussell Jr., just seven and a half months old, who was described as a very nearly perfect child and king of Georgia babies. He lived with his parents, Mr. and Mrs. C.L. Trussell, on Brookline Street. I think this goes without saying that he was white, and all the entrants and winners of these Better Baby contests were. But interestingly enough, there were some African-American Better Baby shows put on, mainly by the NAACP, to fundraise really early civil rights campaigns. This whole topic is incredibly nuanced and probably needs its own episode. Um, But when we talk about especially people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who supported eugenics, most scholars look at it in the light that this was the only way that early Black leaders thought they were going to strengthen their Black race and then make it acceptable in the eyes of white people. By 1929, more than 20 states had enacted sterilization laws, and the state asylum in Milledgeville was operating under a budget shortfall. So what better time to propose a Georgia sterilization law? And thankfully, it did not pass. The same year, the Rialto Theater in downtown Atlanta planned to show a movie called The Very Idea labeled a eugenics comedy. A committee of concerned citizens sought to get the film banned. But the Atlanta Board of Review, which, side note, Atlanta had a movie censorship board, extremely fascinating, and I'm working on a mini episode about it, but they reviewed it and they said, there's no reason to stop the film and we're going to let it play. Opponents urged Mayor Ragsdale to step in and ban the film. And at the last resort, they even boycotted the Rialto. They even went into legal means, trying to file injunctions. But in the end, Atlantans piled in to watch the very idea, and controversy sold more tickets than expected. In 1932, the Georgia Medical Society offered a sterilization bill that included a medical board that would choose candidates for sexual surgery, and that bill failed once again. This is the same year that the Junior League of Augusta established the first birth control clinic, a project that was spearheaded by Nora Nixon. Nora was a Margaret Sanger devotee. And Sanger, if you didn't know, um, she's considered the founder of Planned Parenthood and coined the term birth control itself. But Sanger was also very racist, eugenics fanatic. And that made Nora a huge eugenics fan as well. Through her well-connected and political husband and father-in-law, she got the medical school in Augusta to house the women's clinic and distribute birth control to women they deemed should not be reproducing. Just a few years later, in the 1935 legislative session, the Georgia General Assembly finally considered compulsory sterilization law, and the bill was sponsored by future Governor Ellis Arnold at the suggestion of, surprise, Nora Nixon. It was written with a requirement of having one surgeon and another appointee that will examine all inmates um, at the state and county institutions and then decide who should be sterilized. Lawmakers weren't really happy with the original bill, so they narrowed it down, um, saying that you can only sterilize people who are apt to procreate when they get out, whatever that means, and then have three members of the State Board of Eugenics approve the procedure. With these changes, the bill passes 117 to 29. Vocal dissent came from an Atlanta lawmaker who said that things like this should be left up to God. 
Now, the thing is, even though the bill passed, when it gets to Governor Talmadge's desk, he vetoed it. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, it wasn't because he didn't believe in eugenics or was opposed to the idea. It was because the idea of sterilizing inmates where the costs are covered by the state was progressive reform or thought of as progressive reform. And Talmadge was the furthest thing from a progressive. When E.D. Rivers became governor in 1936 or 1937, um, he signed the bill, and then Georgia became the 32nd and final state to enact a eugenic sterilization law. It was aimed at preventing men and women with, quote, a tendency to serious physical, mental, and nervous disease or deficiency, end quote, from procreating and passing on their hereditary to future generations. For the next three decades, the state of Georgia oversaw the forced sterilization of more than 3,200 people, the fifth highest number in the United States. Dr. Thomas Peacock was superintendent of the asylum in Milledgeville and also conveniently headed the state board of eugenics, which oversaw the majority of these sterilizations. Even when he began to learn of the Nazis' use of eugenics during the Holocaust, Georgia was undeterred, and the practice did not end until a new superintendent was hired at the asylum. The law continued to stay on the books and was revisited in the 1950s, when Herman Talmadge called for the sterilization of welfare mothers. As governor, Talmadge argued that welfare should be denied to children born to single mothers out of wedlock, and as senator, he urged congressional legislation to sterilize unmarried women on welfare who repeatedly bore children. In 2007, a little political drama took place around what seems like a pretty innocuous resolution. A Democratic state representative introduced a resolution to apologize for Georgia's involvement in the eugenics movement, um, which many other states had done at this point. The Republican head of the House Health and Human Services Committee did not agree. And she says, quote, I'm not sure I agree with one generation apologizing for another generation when all the parties involved are long dead, end quote. But that wasn't true, because in 2007, there were very much people still alive who were sterilized against their will by the state of Georgia. Thankfully, it ended up being proposed in the Senate and passing, um, and the state officially recognized its role in eugenics and its actions in forced sterilization of thousands of people. So there you have it, the story of eugenics, better babies, and sterilization, and how it played out in the state of Georgia and the city of Atlanta. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review in your favorite podcast app, and call the Archive Atlanta phone number and leave your Atlanta story. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.